Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Graham Brayshaw. Dr. Graham is the Director of Animal Services at Animal Humane Society and also serves as the organization's Chief Veterinarian. He graduated in 2004 with a DVM from Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine. Before working in animal welfare, he was an associate veterinarian and medical director with Veterinary Centers of America for more than seven years. Dr. Brayshaw started at the Animal Humane Society in 2012 as their senior veterinarian. His areas of interest include high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter, oncology, endocrinology, and balancing individual and herd health. In May of 2017, Dr. Brayshaw was appointed by Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton to serve as a board member on the Minnesota Board of Animal Health. Animal Humane Society is based in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Last year, the organization took in more than 23,000 animals, including almost 11,000 cats locally and from partner shelters in southern states. Animal Humane Society runs four open admission shelters and is the largest animal welfare organization in the upper Midwest. The organization has a placement rate of 96% and has an active community cats program. The organization also runs a low-cost veterinary clinic with a second location to open on the east side of the metro area in 2020 to serve even more people and their pets. When not working, Dr. Graham enjoys playing ultimate frisbee and spending quiet time with his wife, Bryn, dog Mac, and many, many cats. Dr. Graham, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you... uh allowing me to be on. Well, I can't even believe it. It's been over 280 episodes of the Community Cats podcast, and I haven't interviewed anyone from Minnesota. So you are representing uh, the state, and we're actually going to be doing a double show here. So uh, we're going to have our next guest next week is also going to be from Minnesota. So now I feel like I'm covering the state well. I appreciate you joining us today. And first off, I'd really like to find out how you got interested in community cats and and animal welfare in general. Uh, Well, my first foray into animal welfare, first interest actually came back in vet school. Uh, They have all of us do a rotation down in uh, Texas A&M through the local shelters in Austin. And it it was fascinating, fast-paced work, and you know you're making a difference every day. So it really is challenging and rewarding at the same time, which is all you could ever ask from a, a job, something to do. Uh, and then I went out to private practice, got my feet underneath me, was able to learn a lot of veterinary medicine skills. And then in 2012, the opportunity arose uh, to come to Animal Humane Society to be a senior veterinarian and uh, jumped at it. Honestly, didn't think I was qualified, but uh, they did. And it's been, it's been great ever since. I really have enjoyed being in it. And then on the community cat side of it, uh, there's really a lot of advancement that Animal Humane Society, the organization, has done that has allowed us to get to dealing with uh, cats that are living out of the community and don't even come into our shelters. Compared to other states, it's a very different uh, community, cat community, than you you get when I was down in Texas and Florida, a lot of the southern states where there's uh, a lot more roaming feral cats. 
with our frigid negative uh, way too negative temperatures we'll get in the winter living just out and about in the field is not really doable for most of our community cats so they have smaller areas smaller niches uh, and what we can definitely get in later is the, the, the things we've learned on where they live compared to other states. Uh, if you're trying to figure out how many cats are in a community, uh, you actually take the population and divide by six is a very, very rough estimate of how many cats are out there. So if you've got, oh, six million people in a community, you've probably got a million cats somewhere, but that's a nationwide average. And uh, you get to some of the southern states and it might be two million cats, but you get somewhere up here and maybe half a million. So it's, uh, they, they live in different spots, different places uh, that we uh, definitely see in other parts of the country. I love the language that you speak with regards to trying to figure out what your population ratio is to your human population, to your cat population. I was raised up on the targeting philosophy and trying to always figure out you know, how many cats we're assisting, but yet you're also throwing in that concept of tribal knowledge you know, because of our, of our area, because of our climate, because of our economic situation, you're able to fluctuate those numbers and they will change depending on the area. So it's not, we're not able to have a blanket statement as to exactly how many community cats we have out there. So my other question to you is from a concept of return to field, I would assume in Texas, you're going to do a lot more return to field than you would in, in Minnesota. Uh, actually, it depends on the numbers that are coming in into your shelter. Uh, we will still do a good number of returns for uh, what comes to us here. And the really only difference time-wise on return to field is if it is unseasonably cold, and meaning if it's middle of January, middle of February, as long as it's single digits, teens, if we're lucky and gets balmy, it's up in the 20s, then uh, we know that's a temperature these cats are used to living in. So we'll still return them year-round unless we get one of those cold snaps for a few days where it's never getting a bug from negative 10. So as long as we have, I guess percentage-wise, we'll still return about the same percentage of cats. We just may have fewer cats coming in. And that really depends on the shelter. Uh, if you have a community that's going to bring you every single feral stray they can find, every single community cat they can find that's running around, or if they are likely to leave them where they're at. But it, it really has been, uh, we've We've had success on returning them pretty much any time of year unless it is super, super chilly, unless it really is one of those horrible cold, cold snaps. Can you tell us a little bit about the specifics around your community cat program and when it was started and what are the services that are offered and the pricing? Because I know that's always a big question. So many people find that it's just practically unaffordable for most folks to assist community cats, even if, if it's cost. $30, if you're talking 10 or 20 cats, you're, you're getting into an expensive price range for an individual. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how you've addressed some of those challenges. Sure, great, yeah. We, know we, uh, we, we got started in 2014, and it was thanks to PetSmart Charities. Uh, they, uh, they had a decent-sized grant for us to get things kicked off and started. It's since then been operationalized as just part of our, our yearly work. And the approach we took was twofold. We had a targeted trap-neuter-return program, and then we had a general return-to-field program. The targeted trap-neuter-return was an individual who basically did outreach work. They had their target zip code or two zip codes, would go do 
door-to-door canvassing, try and get a hold of anyone who is a colony caretaker in that area, and really focus on trying to get the population in that specific area. Because as we all know, if you try and spread it widely, you're never going to make much of a difference. You need to get, depending on who you talk to, anywhere between 50 and 75% of the animals in an area sterilized to actually affect the population, to try and not eliminate it, but, but try and help control that population in that area. So we had the, uh, the targeted PNR part of it, and then our return to field were cats that came to us that had a history of living successfully outside. And if they were not adoptable for one reason or another, or middle of summertime, which is our higher feline intake time of year, if we were just filling up as a shelter, we are an open admission shelter. If it's a cat that came to us, we didn't have an easy available space for them, and we knew they were living successfully in this area, we would sterilize and and return them. So it was a a, a chance to help us population-wise in the shelter, but also make sure that the cats that are out there that are using resources in the community are sterilized and uh, not perpetuating any sort of overpopulation issue. With those two parts, we have seen return to field pretty much been steady and successful ever since things got rolling in 2014. We learned a lot and failed a lot at first with our targeted trap neuter return just because there weren't the cats there that we thought we were. Uh, As I alluded to earlier, trying to figure out what's right for your community, we found it wasn't just areas with all cats kind of roaming around everywhere. Each had their specific area, their specific niche that had some sort of shelter associated with it and in many situations some sort of resource set up with it of someone either feeding out their back door the, the very kind lady who has the colony that she's developed putting food out in the back, someone who lives in that uh, suburban to rural borderline that has a little hobby farm and just has a ton of cats in their barn. That's really where our community cats are mostly living uh, because in the summertime they can spread out a little bit, but wintertime they do need that place of refuge, a place to, to go back to and hide. And the area we targeted at first was actually more urban than where we really see the cats. And so we were able to transfer to different zip codes and having a lot more successful targeted TNR as we got into the later years of the program. That's a fascinating lesson learned, actually. So when you defined your first target zone, Mm -hmm. did you look at the numbers of cats coming into the shelter and and use that as your way of defining what zip codes you wanted to approach first? Yep, we looked at both total number of cat intakes by zip code and then number of strays by zip code and used that to to target it. We found that even in those areas, it was just a cat here or a cat there. There wasn't the bigger colonies where you can impact that much change. It really was uh, onesie, twosie kind of cats that you can help some, but you're lucky if you can trap a handful of cats in a week or 10 cats in a week versus if you're going and have bigger pockets, bigger colonies, you can have a, a successful 60, 70, 80 cat week from the exact same investment of trap neuter return resources. I receive more benefit from like an owned low-cost spay-neuter program for the owned cat population. It could be indoor only, indoor, outdoor, but does have some sort of a relationship with a, with a guardian. And I've seen programs in urban areas, subsidy programs that only address that owned population, and the shelters have still seen a 60% drop of intakes from that area without a specific TNR program in place. That actually fits pretty well with what we have seen because as we have 
moved on with the program, the, the targeted TNR has become less and less what we've looked at in investing in. And we've focused more on the return to field side of it and really trying to build relationships with the different members of the community that, that already know these cats, manage these cats. We have had a good number of conversations with people that have formed their own group. They, they don't call themselves a rescue. They haven't referred themselves as an official organization, but it's kind of a loose conglomeration of people that all have their colony they care for, and they know two other people that have a different colonies they care for. And it's, it, it's really interesting how it is a, uh, a network, but not an official organization that seems to care for all of these community cats across the city. So yeah. we have, we've adapted to if someone has a cat that is living outside and needs to be sterilized, we have two different ways we've taken to working with them. And one side, if they see this as their cat, it is their outdoor cat that they feed and lives outside, they're taking ownership for that cat, then that is something where if they need surgery for that cat, we do have a low-cost spay-neuter program that is in place. They can bring that cat in and get them sterilized through that, but they would need to pay for the services. And that is where it's 50 60 dollars for spay and neuter depending on uh, the uh, gender of what's coming in. Uh, on the other hand, if it is cats that it's a colony that someone's going out and caring for, these are not their cats, they're not cats are letting inside even for just a little bit, uh, that truly are cats that, that don't want to live in with people. They want to live out in the community and they're not ones they take ownership for, then those are ones that can come through our shelter program and come in, if they, if they come in and trap to one of our shelters, we will sterilize them that day, give them the night to recover, make sure that everything looks good the next day, and then, they, and then that caretaker can take them home the next day. We do uh, request a fee of $50 for each cat that comes in with it, but we also understand the realities and limited resources for people that are trying to do their best for these cats. So I will say on average, we do not... Uh, get back even probably a third of that per cat that comes in, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, we know that mm. it's just a service to get these cats taken care of, and we try and work with them where they can help support us financially as best we can so we can keep doing what we're doing, but we also understand the impact that those dollars have on them and their ability to care for those cats once they get back in the community. The division we really use is are these their cats that they really see as their pets and letting into their house where they are taking ownership of that cat versus these are outdoor cats that I'm trying to do my best to manage and help in that colony that they have. Today's episode is sponsored by Space Kitty Express, your one-stop shop for exotic cat drugs. Everyone's heard of catnip, but what about valerian root, tatarian honeysuckle, or silver vine? Space Kitty Express specializes in offering these hard-to-find catnip alternatives, both in their herbal form and stuffed into a variety of reusable toys. Their herbs are 100% pure, not like those quote-unquote catnip blends you might find in a pet store. Their tartarian honeysuckle wood is cut fresh and kept frozen to lock in its citrusy scent. Their silver vine exudes a mintiness that tingles the nostrils. Their organic valerian root is so musky that they've had to blend it with organic lemongrass so that human noses can tolerate it. Cats can definitely tell the difference between these quality herbs and that stale catnip from the big box store. Visit SpaceKittyExpress.com and watch videos from satisfied feline customers. Use coupon code COMMUNITYCATS, all one word, at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase. That's SpaceKittyExpress.com with coupon code COMMUNITYCATS. Doesn't your cat deserve the best? Spoil them today at SpaceKittyExpress.com. 
ProVetLogic, based in Scottsboro, Alabama, provides educational support and product solutions to professional pet care providers and pet parents throughout the country. As a licensed veterinary medical continuing education provider, ProVetLogic provides a variety of educational tools designed to help cat care providers create a cleaner and safer environment for both the cats in their care and the care providers. To learn more about ProVetLogic, please visit www.provetlogic.com or call 800-869-4789. Now we're going to fast forward about five years, and what were the key lessons learned or, you know, could have, should have? Were there things that you would have done differently looking back? Do you feel that the creation of the Community Cats program was successful as it went, or were they, are there any tips or ideas that you'd like to share with others that are maybe in the process of embarking on developing a Community Cats program? I'd say the, the two biggest things that we did learn, did adapt to, and uh, did see our, our improvement with. One is if you are doing TNR, have it be where you really know that the cats are there. It's not just this is the population or this is the GIS mapping that we have with our intake numbers, but really do that groundwork, that footwork to make sure that there are colony caretakers or people that have these colonies that are living in their, uh, their barns that you can really go out, impact, make a difference. On the communication side of it, it took us about five, six years to really get to where the uh, to where the word's out. And we do see the number of sterilization surgeries we do every year rising and rising and rising just a little bit through this program. It took a little dip at first, but then it started going up as the word got out there. So trying to do whatever you can to reach out to this this loose conglomeration of trappers, colony caretakers people that are really just passionate about it. There's people like that in everyone's community. Uh, and if you can get into them and build a good rapport with them, then you really can impact some positive changes because they've already done a lot of that groundwork for you. Many of them, depending on, on the organization you are, the rescue you are, many of them may have a skewed view of what you are, what you do. Uh, we are an open admission shelter. We will not euthanize for just time in shelter, but we were seen as an organization that pretty much any cat coming to would get euthanized. And our live release rate for felines a decade ago was only about 50 to 55 percent. Uh, we are now, even for adult cats, coming in at 90 plus percent because of the changes and advancement we've been able to do. But that stigma against us was, was well set in the community for, for years. So it's been quite a battle trying to fight that. And it's been a lot of not just putting something out in the paper, but really individual conversations that has allowed the perception to change and made it where people are a lot more willing to work with us when they really weren't willing before. Yeah, I think that communication outlet in the community is wide from an organization that may have done things a certain way, changing that organizational behavior does take a lot of time and it's just you're always you feel like you're messaging over and over again and it just takes Definitely. a long time to create new relationships and new build new bridges and all that kind of stuff um, but it, it does happen and I'm sure you've seen it happening so I'm going to ask you a question that I get from many 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 people trappers other veterinarians especially in the colder climates and here we are we're in the middle of January so this is a question I get all the time, which is when you are spaying or neutering a community cat that is going to be returned, how long do you hold them until you release them? For us, we give them the next day. 
uh, that is that's generally our approach for it summertime or wintertime the cats themselves they are up and active and ready to get around and we have some good injections of pain relief to last several days afterwards we know their pain is under control they are really fully functional cats again the next day if there was ever a extensive surgery if it was uh, a pregnant female where it was a much bigger incision or there's some specific individual complication we're worried about we may hold them longer but in general they are ready to go and ready to get back to where they uh, they need to be that next day. Part of it is also I I do some surgeries, but really is we've got a very good size, really good vet team of about eight, nine vets on the shelter side and five on the clinic side that are really good and practiced at small incisions that are going to hold well. We haven't seen complications with this group or with, or with other uh, groups of cats and dogs we've done surgery on as well where we've we've got the confidence in our surgeons that they're going to be fine the next day. The sutures are going to hold and everything's going to be good. And are you microchipping community cats? Uh, We're not. We actually aren't even microchipping generally as an organization. Uh, We used to microchip every dog, cat, you name it, that came through. And we found that, unfortunately, with how much our population of people move, and how low on the register, oh, I need to update my microchip is, most microchips are dead ends. Uh, even if we get a cat back in that's when we microchipped before, the majority end up turning into dead ends. There was a lady out in uh, San Jose, out in the valley, that she started a, a nonprofit that specifically worked on trying to increase the rate of microchip registration and updating. And even with years of work on it, wasn't able to move the needle. So we will still recommend microchipping, but it's I'll also talk to someone about it that it's their personal responsibility to make sure not only they get it in, but you got to keep it updated. And if you don't, then it's it's nothing other than just a little thing sitting underneath the skin that's benign, not going to cause any problems. But uh, we, we stopped it a few years ago, and our return to owner rates have actually gone up a little bit compared to that, those past years. I think that's more from work we've done in the community than it is from actually uh, having anything to do with microchipping, but we didn't see our return to owner rate change at all with uh, stopping microchipping the 19, 20,000 adopted animals we have come through or the uh, community cats. What we do do for them, and it's purely so we know which ones we have dealt with because we know we give them a rabies, we know we've had a chance to evaluate them, uh, is we put a little tattoo ink inside the tip ear so if we see a little green notch inside the ear, or we see the tip ear and a little green notch, we know, okay, this is one that Animal Humane Society has done. We know we're current on rabies. We know some other things about these cats. And are you tattooing at the spay incision site also? Oh, definitely. Yep. Yeah, we're tattooing both places. Yep. And what about testing protocols? We do not combo test for any of the community cats that we have coming through. Once again, the, the reason really is the numbers we see for uh, those that have tested positive and not. We've looked at those that we have tested and the percentage rate, even if we're selecting for just the ill ones and the ones we know are roaming and breeding, is still only 1% to 2% for that specific target population. And in general, uh, if we were to look at all of our cats that we test, it's it's less than 1% for FELV or FIV. So just for our population, for what we see in Minnesota, 
the percentages of those diseases in our stray and community cat population is similar to what you see across all cats nationwide. And when you average after all cats, we're definitely lower. So simply from the return, where's the right place to invest our dollars? We have seen that, that doing FDL VFIV testing just isn't the right place to invest our resources. Do you uh, combo test cats in your adoption program? If they have a history of roaming and breeding, then we will. Basically, any, any intact cat that comes in over a year old, we will combo mm -hmm. test before going to the adoption floor. And the percentages there, yes, they'll continue to be incredibly low. If it's an already sterilized house cat that's been in someone's house for eight years, we're not worried at all, and we're just moving those guys through without testing. And uh, we do try and really do just the right work we can in shelter and not over-shelter, overwork here and get them out of the community and get them out to the veterinarians. We've got a group of about 200-plus local vets that are all partnering with us in one way or another that offer a free first exam afterwards. And we try and do the basics, get them out, and really have them build that relationship with the veterinarian because that's, that's where they need that relationship to be going down the road. We try and do our part and then get them to the vets from there out. Wow, this is an incredibly fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us today. Dr. Graham, I have a question for you. If you could put your um, magical crystal ball right in front of you and think ahead 10 years from, from today, how would life be like for community cats in Minnesota or across the country And if you had also a magical pocketbook and you could spend as much money as you wanted to for community cats, how would you spend that money? There are always going to be cats, just the nature of their ability to live successfully in the wild, where the population will never completely go away, at least as I can see in the relative near future, 10, 20 years, something along those lines. Where I would love to see the infinite pocketbook and see things go is having all shelters be able to either offer internally if they've got veterinary services or refer to a vet or low-cost spader spay group in their community where any cat that can be sterilized gets to be sterilized. And I would be amazed if we ever saw a day where we truly have every cat sterilized, period. We sterilize between the vet center and the shelter 13,000, 14,000 cats a year and have done it every year for many years running and have not seen those number of necessary sterilizations decrease whatsoever. And we have a relatively smaller cat population than other parts of the community. So if we're ever to really get at shelter overcrowding, euthanasia exclusively for space, with it, which has to happen for some open admission shelters is just the nature of their adopter base and the number of cats that live, uh, live in their community. If we're ever to really get at that where we're no longer having to euthanize healthy, friendly animals, we've got to sterilize absolutely everyone we can. So that would be the, uh, the magic wand wish <laughs> is that these resources are there absolutely everywhere. Uh, we bring up a lot of dogs and a, a decent number of cats from partner communities, especially down south, uh, they are still having to do that, and we are trying to help out through our end uh, as best we can by giving them a place to put some of their cats. But uh, that would be the hope because th there are definitely counties and good swaths of America where there's a ton of cats and there's not the resources for, for spay-neuter. I agree. I agree with that 100%, and I also would 
put all of my money in uh, spay neuter availability uh, for any cat that or owner of cat or caretaker or just any cat to have some sort of connection to those necessary dollars to the necessary sterilization that every cat should get. So I'm on the same page with you on that one. If folks are interested in finding out more about the Animal Humane Society and the work that you are doing, how could they do that? We have everything through our website. It is animalhumanesociety.org, all one long big word, Animal Humane Society. It is a very generic name, but it's, it's kind of a coup that it, that it is our name. We are a uh, Minnesota-only uh, animal welfare organization, or that's the only place we have our, uh, our physical buildings, uh, but we get occasional calls into our pet helpline from Arizona, other places across the country, because it just says Animal Humane Society. But through that website, uh, is the uh, best way to get any information on it. Heck, even my office number and email and those of anyone who's interested in contacting a specific part of uh, organization or programs you can find through that website. Excellent. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Oh, I always like when I get in front of a good number of people to make an ask for, uh, if you're Minnesota, every dollar we get helps us help more animals and we try and do as best we can, but uh, for those that are in other parts of the community, anything you can give to your local animal welfare organization is, is going to help. Uh, things help, food helps, stuff helps, but honestly, most of those groups, they, they really can make the best use from the dollars. So if there's ever uh, a chance I get to be in front of a group of people, I always ask you to give to your local animal welfare organization because they will make good use of it and they will help as many animals as they can. Well, Dr. Graham, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and agreeing to be a guest on my show. And I hope we'll be able to have you on in the future. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 